Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. The greatest glory lies not in never falling, but in rising every time we fall. So said the great Chinese philosopher Confucius. Or perhaps the great American football coach, Vince Lombardi. Or one of the many other inspirational figures to whom this quote is attributed from time to time. Well, whoever said it, they had a point. Because everybody loves a comeback story, don't they? You see it in Hollywood all the time. You see it in sports, in fiction, in the celebrity world. It's Rocky Marciano, or in real life, Tyson Fury peeling himself off the canvas to win the fight. It's Sherlock Holmes coming back from the dead, Luke Skywalker coming back from the swamp. It's Jean Rhys writing Wide Sargasso Sea, 27 years after her last book. Everybody loves a great comeback story. And guess what? In politics, we love them too. The greatest political stories of the 20th century are the great political comebacks. Tales you know far too well for me to recount here. Winston Churchill returning from the political wilderness after the horrors of Gallipoli to lead his nation through its darkest hour. Charles de Gaulle being summoned from retirement to establish the Fifth Republic with the French nation on its knees. Nelson Mandela's long walk to freedom from Robben Island to the South African presidency. And OK, so it's maybe not quite Churchill or Mandela, but the twisting, turning, jaw-dropping news cycle we've just witnessed here in the UK has been pretty captivating as well. A wannabe Prime Minister, roundly defeated by his rival, apparently headed for a new career in Silicon Valley, only to return triumphant to Downing Street just seven weeks later, vindicated at last. For the sheer speed of the turnaround, if nothing else, we've maybe never seen a political comeback quite like that of Rishi Sunak. 66% say that they would vote for Liz Truss. 34% say they would vote for Rishi Sunak. Why are so many people supporting her rather than you? I was a person that MPs cabinet? chose every round ahead of everyone else. Liz Truss is elected as the leader of the Conservative Unionist Party. I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected. Today, Rishi Sunak was elected as Conservative leader. Thank you. What drives these people to stay the course, to keep on keeping on when all appears to be lost? 
Is it luck? Or judgement? Or sheer bloody determination that pushes them on? And what does it feel like to be cast out into the wilderness and then to return so unexpectedly to power? From Politico, I'm Jack Blanchard, and this week on Westminster Insider, we're looking at some of the great political comebacks and pondering who else might yet be ready for a return to centre stage. I will very, very, very probably do it again, Okay. Hasta la vista, baby. Thank you. September 6, 2022. You might remember the speech. And I will now be gently re-entering the atmosphere and splashing down invisibly in some remote and obscure corner of the Pacific. And like Cincinnatus, I am returning to my plow. Thank you all very much. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you. Never before has one Prime Minister's farewell speech sent so many journalists scurrying to Wikipedia so fast. Since he... who? A rich statesman called Lucius Quinctius Cincinnatus, who was born in about 519. This is Edith Hall, Professor of Classics at the University of Durham. Twice very briefly held the reins of power, twice effected an incredible breakout of peace and serenity, and twice gave up power after less than a month and went back to his farm west of the Tiber, saying that he wasn't interested in being permanently in politics. So throughout history, whenever anybody gets summoned, is regarded as this sort of special person with the special powers who can sort everything out, but then who goes back into Civvy Street and, and a modest lifestyle afterwards, they're always hailed as Cincinnatus or Kinkinatus. Yes, as lobby journalists quickly learned as they swatted up on their classics, the great retiring Roman statesman that Johnson had so innocently referenced in his farewell speech had in fact later returned to power triumphantly when his people came calling again. The context is early 5th century BC. and It's a state of almost permanent crisis in ancient Rome, with the uh, Roman Republic having driven out the actual kings and given the plebeian class a lot more uh, say-so and power than it had had previously, then really didn't know how to manage this. So the entire history of the Republic is basically one of, of tension and conflict between, broadly speaking, the patricians, who were the landowners, and the plebeians. And when he first became consul, just for a few months, he impressed everybody, actually because of the clarity of his faith in the patrician class. So when politicians like themselves to Kinkinatus, they're likening themselves to somebody who always fights on behalf of the nobles. His son, who was a loose cannon, had killed a plebeian. So he actually had to pay a huge fine for his son's killing. He had to take responsibility financially for that, which he did do, and everybody admired that. And he went and worked a very small farm. He lost all his fortune, this place to the west of the Tiber, and did his own ploughing. So 
he became sort of held up as an example of, of, of somebody who was very rich, but who was prepared to give it all up and sort of work quite hard. And that seemed to mollify the plebeians. There was going to be a revolution. There were an awful lot of uh, very poor people, very wild people. There were uh, slaves who were mutinying. Uh, there was a lot of hunger. He was summoned, the Augustan Roman historian, and paints a very romantic picture of these senators arriving on, on the little boat from uh, the centre of Rome uh, to his country uh, farm. They found him topless, very important, topless at the plough. And he was told to go and get his senatorial toga. And they hadn't got any servants anymore. And he called his wife, who was called Rasilla, out of the humble cottage to bring in the toga, put on the toga and went off to Rome. He achieved victory for patricians and stability, stability, keyword today, in 16 days, <laughs> then disbanded the voluntary army and went back home. And some sources say exactly the same happened uh, about uh, 19 years later in 439. There was a conspiracy run by a man called Spurius Milius. Uh, he wanted to make himself king of Rome. And that time, our hero, Kinkinatus, only had to rule for 21 days before he went back to his farm. But I should say that both periods involved very serious brutality on his part and uh, punishment. I mean, he's become a great hero. But if you actually read the story in detail, he was perfectly prepared to resort to what we would regard as outrageous, humiliating public violence in order to restore that order. And uh, he was doing it on the behalf of the rich. I sometimes think of de Gaulle being brought back in France in the 1960s when the students were on the barricades. Why was it this guy they, they kept going back to? It's sort of like a movie, isn't it? It's sort of the old man is like, I've retired, I've given up all this shit. And then, you know, they come back and he's the only one that can save them. Why him? It's strange, isn't it? People seem to achieve this totem-like uh, aura that only they can do it. I mean, that was certainly the case with de Gaulle in the 1960s, that everybody thought that only he could sort of restore peace when when the entire proletariat and, and, and student body was <laughs> rising up on the streets. Um, and I think it's interesting that Boris Johnson sort of likened himself to that. He seems to have seen himself as the only one that would do. And perhaps he wanted, you know, to leave that sense that he could always have another comeback. And Canalsis came back twice not just once it's hard to imagine boris johnson humbly working away on his plow year after year though isn't it in the meantime well it's completely um appalling to think that he would actually take his top off <laughs> i guess the difference with king Kinatus is that he was a reluctant returnee was he he wasn't plotting this whole thing from his farm presumably no no and i think the fact that he'd given up the huge fortune and didn't complain about it and he had Pawning luck with his children, uh, you know, his sons were all in, got into trouble. But that actually meant that the plebeian class liked him more than any of the other patricians. He got the common touch. And that's another thing which I think Boris Johnson prides himself on, is that he thinks he can somehow talk to red wall industrial man or post-industrial man who gets him like he doesn't get the other Tories. So it was, I think, an incredibly both shrewd, but also revealing analogy for him to make. But Boris Johnson did not, of course, pull off the comeback of which he dreamed. Well, not yet, at least. For two or three days, though, in late October, it did actually seem possible, as he flew back in from his Caribbean island, 
kind of like Napoleon returning from Elba to retake Paris, another great political comeback, only taller and chubbier and less successful. Boris Johnson never officially entered, but he's out of the race. Am I allowed to be this gleeful? Well, I am. With this former Prime Minister out, are we looking right now at the next Prime Minister? Now, instead, the comeback king of 2022 would be Johnson's great rival, Rishi Sunak, who'd been soundly defeated by Liz Truss in the summer-long Tory leadership contest, only to replace her as Prime Minister. 50 crazy days later. After losing the race so bitterly back in July, Rishi Sunak is the new Prime Minister. But although the sheer speed of Sunak's turnaround was remarkable, in a sense he was actually following in a grand tradition of British Prime Ministers who have come back from apparent political death. It's actually surprising the number of Prime Ministers who have seemingly vanished into the wilderness at some point in their lives and yet ended up in the top job in British politics. This is Nicholas Allen, Professor of Politics at Royal Holloway, University of London. Rishi Sunak is the latest, but he's by no means the only Prime Minister to have staged a comeback. If you go back 100 years before to Andrew Bonalor, who had been the leader of the Conservative Party, key minister in Lloyd George's wartime um, war cabinet and seemingly finished with his political career. And then come the 1922, uh, the famous meeting when the Conservatives decided to pull the plug on their support for Lloyd George's coalition. He was acclaimed as the new Conservative leader and became Prime Minister. So, you know, there is a rich pedigree going back even 100 years. We had uh, Stanley Baldwin, who was Prime Minister from 23 to beginning of 24, lost an election, then came back, lost an election, then came back. We had Ramsay MacDonald, who was Prime Minister, who lost an election, then came back. Churchill um, was Prime Minister during the war, lost an election in 1945, but came back in 1951. He'd also, of course, resigned from the government in pretty embarrassing circumstances um, during the First World War over the failed Gallipoli campaign, the, the disaster in the Dardanelles. Oh, of course, and Anthony Eden as well. You know, I forgot about Anthony Eden. Actually, the, the, more, the more you start digging, you suddenly think, oh, yes, one more. Th- it's a bit like Colombo. Just one more thing, one more prime minister. And, and Anthony Eden, of course, he was seemingly in the wilderness from 1938, at least until being brought back by Churchill. So there is a very rich history in British politics of those who've made it to the top having some kind of comeback. Harold Wilson was the last prime minister to lose an election and then come back at another point with winning a general election. Do you think something has changed? You know, you you reeled off a fantastic list of, you know, people who lost elections and then, you know, obviously carried on as leader of the opposition and came back, um, you know, decades ago. Do you think that's over now? Do you feel like it feels like we're in a different world where like the sort of disgrace of losing in a general election of the Prime Minister, we just sort of assume they'd be out and gone after that? I think, yes, I, I think political parties are much less forgiving now of party leaders who who fail. I think it's very, very difficult for a political party that loses a general election, particularly by a big margin. Let's go back to John Major. I mean, the landslide defeat that he experienced in 1997, you know, there was no way that he could really stay. There's no way he wanted to either. There's sort of the general personalisation of politics, the fact that 
more weight is now seemingly attached to the party leader. And once they're seen as a loser, that's it. They're never going to be able to recover the authority. I just wanted to touch on some of the great ministerial comebacks of the last few decades. Are there one or two that spring to mind? Someone you thought you'd never see again suddenly surging back to the top of politics? Michael Heseltine, obviously, I think. Michael Heseltine, who quit as Defence Secretary of the Westland Affair under Margaret Thatcher, relatively loyal on the backbenches, but always there. And then, of course, came back in 1990 after losing to John Major in that year's leadership contest. Other great comebacks would probably be Peter Mandelson. Peter Mandelson was sacked or preemptively resigned, however you want to describe it, twice in the early years of New Labour. After the second time, he spent some time in Brussels uh, as one of the European commissioners and then was summoned back to British politics by Gordon Brown, sort of a a rabbit out of the hat to bolster um, Brown's position. So that, in a way, was, I think, a pretty significant comeback. We'll be hearing direct from Peter Mandelson later in the podcast. Now, these kind of cabinet comebacks, of course, have been all the rage under Rishi Sunak. In fact, Sunak last month appointed what I think we can describe as a comeback cabinet, bringing back no fewer than 12 former cabinet ministers to retake their seats around his top table. One of them, Suella Breverman, had only been sacked six days before for misconduct. And another... Gavin Williamson was actually on his second cabinet comeback, but only lasted two weeks before being forced out in disgrace for a third time on Tuesday night. I haven't looked at every single cabinet formation going back over the centuries, but I'm I'm fairly confident that is the highest proportion of retreads, certainly in a takeover Prime Minister's cabinet that we've ever seen. In fact, Professor Allen reckons that on just 12 occasions between 1945 and 2010, did we see ministers who'd been sacked or forced to quit the cabinet make a return. 12 times in 65 years. Since the Tories returned to power in 2010, sacked ministers have returned to cabinet on 28 occasions. It gets at the enormous turbulence that we've seen in British politics, partly as a result of Brexit, partly a result of the divisions in the Conservative Party, and related to that, of course, the very rapid turnover in prime ministers that we've had um, in the last dozen years. The closest comparison or timescale we can think of would be, I suppose, 1951 to 1964. So when the Conservatives were in power for 13 years, then you had four prime ministers. But even then, there wasn't the tendency to chop and change. I think one of the distinctive things about recent conservative politics is that prime ministers are now chosen when they are chosen in between elections through all member leadership ballots. And that has given license to them to use a personal mandate that perhaps nullifies the claims of other ministers. It's basically created a winner-takes-all mindset. That did not apply in the 1950s and 1960s. And so perhaps partly for that reason, you haven't seen this one winner comes in, brings in their side, another prime minister comes in, brings in their side, another prime minister comes in, brings back their side, and so on. But what's it like to actually be the guy making the political comeback? How does it feel to get that call? We'll be hearing from Peter Mandelson himself straight after the break. 
Stay with us. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. A message from Lloyd's Banking Group. Lloyd's Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. It's 2004 and a Westminster-weary Peter Mandelson is headed for Brussels. He's been an MP for 12 years now, has twice helped Labour win landslide election victories and has twice been forced to quit Tony Blair's cabinet following allegations about his personal affairs. A job as Britain's new EU commissioner with a prized global trade brief looks enticing. Going to Europe was a huge opportunity for me. It was a much bigger platform for me. I was representing in politics and government not just one country, but 27. It all seemed so much bigger and more complex and more exciting and more challenging than the sort of seesaw of British politics and the sort of battles between Tony and Gordon. And I mean, all that receded into the past. Uh, I, I was able to see all that in much greater perspective. And in your mind at that point, are you kind of done with domestic politics? Have you moved on into a different world and, and that is all behind you? Or are you thinking at the back of your mind, maybe at some point in the future, I could go back and do a bit more in the, the cabinet or whatever? Never occurred to me that I'd return to British politics. I, I'd had my fill of it, uh, quite honestly, the whole goldfish bowl atmosphere and pressure cooker existence of British politics. I'd been in government uh, after our you know, landslide victory in 1997 in uh, two successive posts, both of which fascinated me, to mark the Department of Trade and Industry, uh, and then later the Northern Ireland office, where I had actually to implement the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. But the problem I had was that I, my ministerial life, my time in that government was completely defined by my relationship with Tony Blair. I was trying to do different, exciting things. I was trying to do things in my own right, to make a name for myself, to chalk up a, achievements in vital policy areas. And yet everywhere I turned, I seemed to be drawn back uh, into, into this relationship uh, with, with, with Tony. And that wasn't going to be the case in Brussels. It was a different world, different platform, 
different people, so many different countries. Mandelson, I should say here, for those listeners too far afield, or I can't believe I'm actually saying this, too young to be well-versed in 90s and noughties British politics, was the other central figure of the new Labour years, alongside Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. Once close to Brown, he later became seen as the archest of arch-Blairites after supporting Tony Blair for the leadership. And as the Blair-Brown relationship began to fall apart, he found himself caught right in the middle. His excellent autobiography is even titled The Third Man. Candidly, the last thing I wanted to do was to be drawn back uh, into that sort of domestic, rather parochial world of British uh, politics uh, with all the sort of, you know, stresses and storms that had uh, characterised my initial time uh, in, in government and the very painful way in which I had become the meat in the sandwich between Gordon Brown and Tony Blair. I was just ready to shed all that and put it behind me. And yet. <laughs> yet and yet, yes, indeed. Peter Mandelson has returned to the business department he was removed from ten years ago. Yesterday he spoke with Tony Blair, who gave his personal blessing to this extraordinary political third coming. In 2008, something happened, Peter, and perhaps you can tell our listeners what it was. Obviously Tony Blair had been replaced by Gordon Brown by this point as Prime Minister, and an awful lot has been written about the relationship between the two of you. How would you have characterised that relationship at that time when he was sort of a new prime minister and you were in Brussels? Well, I was determined, uh, having put my early experiences of government in Britain behind me, uh, I was determined not to be a sort of sulking, resentful presence. You know, I, 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 I just didn't want to take a position or play a role, really, in relation to either of them anymore. Um, but what happened was that after Gordon became Prime Minister, he, he got off to a reasonable start that summer in 2007. But then in, uh, uh, in not calling the election for which he had geared everyone uh, up to hold in uh, the autumn of 2007, everything seemed to sort of fall away for him. There is not going to be an election this year unless there's an extraordinary circumstance. He was pretty clear that there will not be an election next year either. I mean, it was just a series of, you know, pieces of uh, bad luck. The public sort of moved to a very different position in relation to Gordon. And the, the thing started, appeared to start to unravel uh, uh, for him. And that took us into 2008, and I met him again. Uh, he came to Brussels. I was Trade Commissioner. He was seeing the President of the Commission, uh, Barroso, but he asked to see me beforehand. And what was meant to be a sort of 10-minute sort of, you know, bury the hatchet, make peace, sort of almost a sort of a diplomatic sort of uh, uh, reintroduction uh, of, of, of us to each other, um, it became a conversation for nearly an hour. He was very late for his meeting at, with Barroso. And it, what happened was that it was like, I don't know, it, it was, suddenly we were both taken back to the sort of working relationship and ease of conversation and relationship that we'd had when I first started to work with him in the 1980s and then into the early 1990s before the schism between him and, and, and Tony opened up when Tony succeeded John Smith as leader of the party. And it was a bit like 
you know, really going back to how we were when we originally met and worked together. Um, it was nice, but it never occurred to me for one moment that this sort of conversation was going to be a regular occurrence, let alone uh, go back and serve him in government. And how did that final part happen? When did he start to talk to you about an idea that maybe you could come back? He never did. He never talked to me about it. He never broached it. He never hinted uh, at it. Nobody else did. So that when you know the banking crisis really started to uh, unfold and uh, break right across the UK economy in uh, September 2008, I talked to him from time to time and I had to go back to be briefed in the Treasury about what we were doing in, in, in the Commission. I was ushered into the uh, upstairs small dining room, that rather nice oak-panelled room at number 10 that was Mrs Thatcher's favourite room, I think. And, you know, there in front of me were a, a, a few rather unattractive sandwiches, a, a banana and a yoghurt, uh, where we were suddenly going to break bread and discuss the financial crisis. Um, and without really a moment's hesitation, he cut straight to the chase and said, I want you to come back and help deal with this crisis. And I was absolutely flummoxed. I mean, you have to remember that I was, you know, very happy in the, the, the rest of the world, and very happily doing my job as trade commissioner. Uh, obviously, I was concerned about what was going on uh, in Britain, but it didn't occur to me that I'd play a part in it. And uh, and I said, well, look, I'll go away and think about it. He said, well, I, I need to have your answer. And I said, well, OK, perhaps give me the weekend to think about it. No, he said, I want to make an announcement tomorrow. I said, tomorrow, Friday? He said, yes. You know, we're going to be taking... Uh, very radical action to save the banks over the weekend. And I want to have you rejoin the government and you in place, uh, dealing with the economic and business side of all this um, by tomorrow. And I said, well, can I have 10 minutes to think about it? He said, yes, you can have 10 minutes. I took a, 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 an hour and a half. But by the end of that afternoon, I knew what I had to do. You, you know, the... It was a time of uh, national crisis. I, I, I felt as if I was really wanted and really needed. I mean, it was no smaller task than to stop this banking crisis, literally take the rest of the UK economy over a cliff. I didn't really have an alternative. I had to play my part. And although I was very sorry to leave uh, Brussels and Europe and my trade job, I knew exactly by the end of the afternoon what I had to do, and I did it, and it was announced the next day. I can remember jaws hitting the floor all over Westminster, just just as yours had done. Was there part of you that enjoyed that, just the shock of the, the media and all the rest of it? Uh, possibly. I mean, you have to remember the part that the media played in my original departure from the government. I mean, it was only that really intense media pressure uh, on Number 10 that those years before uh, had essentially bounced uh, Tony and others in number 10 into forcing my resignation. And uh, I didn't really want to face the UK media, I suppose, in any shape or form ever again, uh, given what they'd done to me before. Uh, but there it was, and I had to enter Downing Street with all those 
uh, banks of cameras and people shouting out uh, questions to me. And I think it was Nick Robinson or Gary Gibbon from Channel 4, I can't remember which, said, how on earth could you be coming back, you know, yet again after two resignations from the government? And I said, well, let's hope third time lucky. And so it proved to be. Now, it's not just Britain, obviously, where political comebacks have a long and enthralling history. We've already mentioned the great French comeback kings, Napoleon and Charles de Gaulle. We must surely give a shout-out, too, to Silvio Berlusconi, Italian Prime Minister for three bonkers stretches between 1994 and 2011, and even now playing a power broker's role at the top of Italian politics. And no list could be complete either without mentioning the topsy-turvy world of Australian politics, a subject close to my heart, as regular listeners will know and the astonishing comeback staged by Labour's Kevin Rudd and the Liberal Party's Malcolm Turnbull over the past 15 years, both men somehow coming back after being toppled by internal leadership coups to oust their hated opponents and reclaim the premiership. But finally, and appropriately given we had the midterm elections this week, I want to turn my attention across the pond to the greatest comeback story American politics has ever seen. A US vice president, defeated when his turn finally came to run for the top job, then defeated again two years later when he ran in a mere state governorship election, sensationally returning to Washington later in the decade to win two landslide victories as US president. I have received a very gracious message from the vice president congratulating me for winning the election. Subsequent events have tarnished his legacy, to say the least. But in 1968, Richard Milhouse Nixon was unquestionably America's comeback king. Nixon had a meteoric rise from obscurity. This is the historian John A. Farrell, author of what is, to my mind, the greatest one-volume biography of Nixon's life. A bunch of uh, conservative Republicans who were upset with Franklin Roosevelt's uh, domestic program, the New Deal, uh, plucked him out of nowhere and asked him if he wanted to run for uh, Congress in a conservative district in Southern California. From there, in, a, in the short span of six years, he went to the United States Senate and then was picked by uh, Dwight Eisenhower uh, to be his running mate and became vice president of the United States. And because he was the vice president and Eisenhower was a very popular president, Nixon became the front runner for the 1960 Republican nomination and squared off against John F. Kennedy and lost. He's 47 years old in, in 1960. He's been vice president, as he said, to a very popular president. Would he have been expecting to win that election? Would he have been confident going into it against, a, a, obviously, a very young opponent? Uh, it was pretty well thought to be an even match going in. Kennedy had numbers on his side. He had youth, his telegenic abilities. Uh, Nixon had experience. And uh, the fact that uh, he had been a vice president for this, like you said, a very uh, famous uh, president, Dwight Eisenhower. The election did not go as Nixon had planned. Kennedy's youth and energy worked in his favour, even though Nixon was only four years older than the fresh-faced senator from Massachusetts. 
Kennedy's margin of victory was the narrowest in almost half a century, and many of Nixon's supporters claimed voter fraud played a part. That experience was a searing one because uh, he thought that the Kennedy family uh, and machine had stolen the election from him. And from that came this terrible inner resolve that he was never going to be outcheated again. After eight years as vice president, Nixon was beaten. Would he head off into the sunset, his career in ruins? No, he actually went back to California and began immediately planning um, to run again, whether it was going to be in 64 or 68. And his uh, advisors convinced him that he should run for the governor of California so that he would have a platform from which to run for the presidency again. He never really cared for domestic type issues. And so the governor of California was a poor fit for him. And uh, so he ran a poor campaign in 1962 and he was uh, undone, blamed it on the press and held this very famous uh, press conference uh, where he uh, told the reporters that they would never have Dick Nixon to kick around anymore. Just think how much you're going to be messy. You don't have Nixon to kick around anymore because, gentlemen, this is my last press conference. And of course, it, it wasn't. Um, he immediately <laughs> uh, began uh, plotting his next comeback. And so here we are then six years later and he, he does it. He, he, he makes a run for president in 68 and, and this time finally is successful. An extraordinary achievement for someone who, as you say, has lost two big elections. How did he do that? How did he turn himself from this twice loser into the president of the United States? Well, he moved to New York for one thing. And, and in New York, he very assiduously uh, cultivated uh, media types. He hired uh, staffers from uh, major newspapers who knew how to talk to the press um, and argued his case for him. He would would laugh and joke with the press. He came across as much more of a, uh, a moderate rather than uh, an extreme uh, conservative. And, uh, and he was lucky. Uh, one of his major... Uh, rivals self-destructed a fellow named George Romney, whose son Mitt Romney was to run for president uh, many years later. But but uh, George Romney went to Vietnam and came home and explained to the American people how he had been brainwashed before he uh, went over there by the State Department. And the American people were aghast that somebody would admit to being brainwashed by his own bureaucracy. And and uh, Nelson Rockefeller uh, was another uh, formidable candidate um, who was seen as too liberal. Barry Goldwater was seen as too conservative. And so Nixon was a was sort of a mainstream centrist, an old reliable type guy in a year where the world was exploding with Martin Luther King's assassination, Robert Kennedy's assassination, soaring crime rate, um, uh, cities burning down uh, due to uh, race riots. And so Nixon was seen as as a steady and familiar face uh, that people could uh, rely upon. You've studied this guy, obviously, for a long period, John. You've read his writings and probably listened to his tapes. Um, what drove him like you know most politicians after they lose once or twice big defeats tend to think all right well maybe i'll go and do something else make some money in the private sector i don't know have a happy easier life he just kept going and kept going until he got to the white house what why i would say that it was it was his upbringing he was a, a very uh, strange mix of on one side of the family were educated progressive quakers 
um, who were uh, fans of Woodrow Wilson and Teddy Roosevelt um, and the progressive movement. And on the other side of the family was his father, who was a very uneducated a rough man who was always teaching his sons that they had to be tough and that there were enemies out there. The idea that um, you had to work hard, that uh, everybody was going to be against you. And so Nixon was this strange mix of, of idealism on on one part from the legacy of his mother's side and uh, and this bully uh, on the other side, uh, the legacy from uh, uh, trying to impress his father of how, how tough he was um, all these years. And uh, together that came through with a um, abiding need to um, uh, achieve something great that he could lay at his mother's feet. And at the same time, uh, a feeling uh, from his father's side that uh, you were never beaten uh, until you quit. And in his career, he went sort of went back and forth between these two influences. Um, and both of them insisted that he kept on and uh, and and uh, keep going until he was elected in 68. And then, of course, it was the fear of losing the 72 election, perhaps to another Kennedy, Ted Kennedy, that caused him to um, lead uh, his party and, and his administration down the road to Watergate. Farrell's new book, a biography of the late Senator Ted Kennedy, touches on one of the other great comeback stories of modern American politics. He was the driver in a car accident that claimed the life of a young woman in 1969 at a place called Chappaquiddick Island in Massachusetts. And it was thought that his um, career was over. He ran for president in 1980 and was soundly defeated by incumbent uh, Jimmy Carter. But uh, he did something very remarkable. Uh, He then went on and served for another um, 30 years in the United States Senate, where he developed this amazing ability to reach across the aisle and work in ways that are stunning given the polarity these days um, with people like uh, Reagan and Bush and uh, Nixon and McCain and Simpson and Dole um, forging uh, one of the great legislative records uh, of all time. So there's a a comeback story there as well. Only one U.S. president has ever lost an election and then come back to win another, a guy called Grover Cleveland in 1893. But in modern times, no one has pulled off a comeback quite like Nixon. At least, not until now. I think it really was the greatest comeback in American history. There's very few stories that rival it. Mitt Romney lost his first race for the U.S. Senate, came back and won the governor's race, lost the presidential race, and and is now settled in the Senate. So he's certainly someone who has that sort of sturdiness and drive but uh, really not too many people in all of American history who have, who have shown that kind of tenacity and success. William Jennings Bryan, who ran for president three times and lost all three times, but uh, to have come back and won is very difficult. I gather the guy that lost last time round quite fancies another shot at it. Maybe. We want make America great again. It's very simple. Now, I don't like to end the podcast on a depressing note. But given we've just had the US midterms this week, we kind of have to touch upon the very real possibility that another stunning comeback story could yet be playing out before our eyes. Yep, just when you thought it was safe to go back into the water, it seems Donald J. Trump is plotting his return. I'm going to be making 
a very big announcement on Tuesday, November 15th. I asked Politico's Trump watcher-in-chief over in D.C., our national political correspondent, Meredith McGraw, whether there was any doubt that Trump fancies another run of the presidency in 2024. Right now, I don't have any doubts at all. In all signs from what he's been doing politically to how he's talking about things with advisors and even to discussions his advisors are having behind the scenes, it seems it's a green light for him right now to run again for 2024. Trump, of course, did not have a great night on Tuesday. The candidates he backed, like the Republican Party as a whole, kind of underperformed expectations of this great red wave across the country. And Trump's new rival, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, was the Republican Party's big success story of the evening. Florida is where Wolf goes to die. Suddenly he looks like the main roadblock to Trump's chances of winning the Republican nomination again in 2024. So in the polling that we've seen so far, Trump is above and beyond the preferred candidate among uh, Republican voters. And that's among a field that includes uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. But, you know, those numbers can can change. In past presidential elections, we've seen how odds can change for candidates seemingly overnight. I mean, in 2016, he was seen as an outsider right at the start. And now he's he is the Republican Party. Oh, that's how it looked from looks from outside. Truly, um, he's really managed to hold a grip on the Republican Party. And that arc has been um, pretty extraordinary if you think about where he left things back in January of 2021 when he left Washington, D.C. He was seen as, as an outsider, if you will, for January 6th and for his continued claims that the 2020 election was stolen, but we quickly saw how he was able to turn that around and 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 still top Republican officials see him as the kind of de facto leader of the party. That's kind of amazing to see from outside. Why has this not been the end of his political career? It's the sort of thing, charge sheet, that would end most political careers, I would have thought. Why is he different, do you think? I think part of it is he has been so unique politically as this uh, kind of celebrity. And I think the way that he's operated within the party, he's been able to elbow out most people who have tried to challenge him in different ways. And his base has really become the most powerful wing of the, the GOP in a lot of ways. I think another part of it is frankly, the money. He is such a prolific fundraiser. And I think that's really hard for any political party apparatus to move away from. And what do you think is driving him personally? I mean, most one-term presidents, you know, history books say they don't try again four years later. And he's quite an elderly guy, to, to be blunt. Like, why is he doing it again? Well, I think part of it, it's just so personal for him. Um, you know, he wants to make a comeback. He wants to be able to say that he won and he vanquished his so-called political enemies here. Um, we've seen in the this past midterm election how he was so fixated on defeating Republicans who voted for his impeachment Um for Republicans who have openly challenged him. And so I think his running 
for uh, president again would only be a reflection uh, of that sort of personal need for a vengeance here, if you will. History suggests you cannot pull off a political comeback through force of will alone. Richard Nixon perhaps came closest to doing so. But even for him, the stars aligned, with internal rivals imploding and external factors easing his path to the White House. For the other characters we've discussed on this podcast, luck and circumstance appear to be the central players. A sudden shift in power bringing old allies back to the fold. Or a sudden sense of crisis forcing a leader or a party or perhaps an entire nation, to turn to a familiar figure, Cincinnatus-like from the past, be that Peter Mandelson or Rishi Sunak, or indeed Winston Churchill. Now, whether those same stars align again for Donald Trump, or indeed one day for Boris Johnson, we can only wait and see. Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider with me, Jack Blanchard. If you've enjoyed it, do please follow our feed wherever you get your podcasts. And why not have a look through our back catalogue too for other episodes you might enjoy. For the Nixon fans amongst you, if that's the right word, I can recommend our episode on political scandals from season five. My producer this week was James Tyndale of Whistledown Productions and here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez. We'll be back next week. I'll see you then. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.